Stay tuned for Corporations and Democracy. The opinions expressed on Corporations and Democracy are those of our guests and of the hosts, and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. First you told us only through you could we know God, and if we dared to question, he wouldn't spare the rod. For you we worked the soil, for you we dug the moors, for you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars. Now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do. You say the world around us belongs fairly to the few, but about six billion people no doubt will agree this world is our home. Not your property, it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would enclose the land all around the earth, our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain. You who've sacrificed the public good for your private gain. With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on these shores, but because you own the money, you see that it's all yours. We laid the phone lines and the pipelines and then right before our eyes, you see these things are taxes paid for. You now will privatize. Privatize the hospitals. Privatize the schools. Privatize the prisons for all those who break your rules and preparing for the day. When all the wells run dry, you say you own the very rain that falls down from the sky, but it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who'd own the water, all around the earth Our future is your downfall When you cut this ball and chain You who'd sacrifice the public good For your private gain You claim to own the harvest With your terminator seeds You claim to own the genomes Of every animal that breeds You claim to own our culture And the music that we play And with each song that we download To your coffers we must pay You'd even own my name And you'd say it's for the best Maybe you'll let us on your radio If our songs can pass your test You own country, you own western You say you've given us a choice You may own the airwaves But you'll never own my voice It's the commons, our right of birth And you who'd own the music All around the earth Our future is your downfall When you cut this ball and chain You who'd sacrifice the public good For your private gain It's the commons our right of birth And you who would own everything All around the earth Our future is your downfall When you cut this ball and shame You who'd sacrifice the public good For your private gain Good evening and welcome to Corporations and Democracy For December 16th 2021, this is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Tonight on Corporations and Democracy, we're happy to do our annual end-of-year look at Project Censored's Most Suppressed Stories for 2021. We're pleased to have Andy Roth back with us again to walk us through some of the worst omissions and distortions from the, the news reported this year. Andy is the Associate Director of Project Censored. He coordinates the program's, or the uh, Campus Affiliates program with several hundred students at two dozen colleges and universities across the country. His research and writing have been published in many places, including Index on Censorship, In These Times, Yes Magazine, Media, Culture and Society, and the International Journal of Press Politics. His PhD is in sociology from UCLA and a BA in sociology and anthropology before that. He also serves on the board of the Media Freedom Foundation. So let's look at this year's most censored stories. Andy Roth, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. So we are having a, a technical um, excitement here, and I'm so sorry about that. In the meantime, um, you know, one of the things while we're waiting to find Andy again, um, one of the things we really like getting uh, every week from Chuck Collins from inequality.org is the petulant plutocrat of the week. 
And uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about that unless do you have him on now, do you think, Steve? Do you have Andy? Um, the, this week's uh, petulant plutocrat <laughs> is the uh, CEO of, of Dollar Tree Discounts Chain, and uh, he's going to change that. He's going to raise the dollar now to be more than a dollar. I know his customers are very excited about this. Um, he, on the other hand, makes, let's see, $1.23 billion in profits, and personally he made $10 million. last year. That's Mr. Dollar Tree. Well, maybe um, I'll start talking about what this show is about, which is really, it's an important show, actually. It's uh, Project Censored, and every year they they started out of Sonoma uh, College there in Santa Rosa, but they're now all over the country, and uh, Andy, as you heard Steve introduce him, um, is in charge of uh, uh, like a hundred students at a uh, dozen different colleges throughout the country, and every year they they dig into um, news stories to, to bring them to light. The ones that are just kind of uh, floundering around the edges and not being picked up by the mainstream media where people can hear them. Uh, I was looking at some of the sources that they found uh, this year for stories. You might recognize some of them as a KZYX listener. Um, Fair, Common Dreams, um, Truth Out, uh, Intercept, Color Lines. Um, uh, Egberto Willis is an interesting commentator on YouTube. And that's, that's, those are just a few of the sources that I see that they uh, took on this year to find some of the stories. So we're going to try this again, right? We are. <laughs> Andy, did we get lucky this time? Yes, we're connected, I think. Hey. Hi, Steve. Hi, Annie. Oh, it's so nice to hear your voice. I can't tell you. <laughs> you know, that my... Great my... To be connected to you all there in Mendocino County. Nice to see a 707 area code on my phone. Yeah. So yeah. my apologies and to uh, our guests and to listeners. But this is Corporations and Democracy for today, and we're talking with Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored, and we're going to talk about this year's most censored stories and such. So, do you want to start out talking a little bit about uh, Project Censored itself, uh, what it is? Yeah. Well, uh, as your listeners uh, there may know, Project Censored started in 1976 at Sonoma State University, um, where Carl Jensen uh, was teaching courses in sociology and in communications and. Uh, was interested in engaging his students, not just in kind of learning about uh, the intersections of news media and politics, but actually intervening some of them, uh, making interventions themselves. So they began tracking um, important news stories that were being neglected altogether or covered in biased ways by the, uh, the mainstream, the so-called mainstream press, the corporate media, the establishment media. That was um, 45 years ago now. Um, in more recent times, uh, the project continues to have strong connections at Sonoma State University. But around 2009, 2010, the project branched out, and we now have a campus affiliates program, which I help coordinate as the associate director of the project, uh, a campus affiliate program that brings together several hundred students and faculty members from college and university campuses across the United States uh, in a decentralized kind of grassroots collective effort to continue tracking those important but underreported or neglected uh, uh, stories that the corporate news media miss or distort um, And so every year, Project Censored uh, puts out a book um, that includes as one of its primary chapters is the showpiece, uh, a a list of the 25 most important but underreported stories. Uh, Those stories are available not only in the book, but also on the Project Censored website, projectcensored.org. So any of the stories that we're going to end up talking about tonight – uh, if you're interested in digging deeper on them, um, both online and in the form of the book, there's more. There's more than we could we can uh, cover in an hour. 
Yes, there certainly is. We're really, really happy to have this book and uh, appreciate what you're doing. It's, it's really sensational when you think of what's really going on. Part of the uh, this year's book is kind of about the free press and turmoil, and you aren't kidding about that. Uh, let me just digress for a second. You um, dedicate the book to Glenn Ford. Um, can you tell us who Glenn Ford is? He's not the not from Hollywood, yeah. I don't assume. Glenn Ford. Yeah, Glenn Ford. Uh, uh, Glenn Ford passed away at the age of 72 in July of this year, uh, but his living legacy is as a pioneer and a giant among radical independent journalists. Um, people who know Glenn Ford uh, know this, uh, but um, he's the co- was the co-founder and the executive editor of the Black Agenda Report, um, which was established in 2006. Um, Ford's connections to the project were strong. He contributed reporting to what was our number five story from the 2017 yearbook about the corporate exploitation of global refugees. Um, uh, the, the exploitation of global refugees being masked uh, by humanitarianism. Um, and that story is a great example of how Ford was call, would call out abuses of authority that other people simply weren't seeing or didn't want to uh, speak to as directly as he would. So he talked, for instance, about how a deal uh, in that in that case between the European Union and Turkey to keep uh, refugees out of the EU was a, a basically, in his words, a deal between devils. Um, so Ford is someone who I was talking with Mickey Huff, the director of the project, about Glenn Ford the other day, and Mickey's comment to me was, Glenn Ford was someone who, as an intrepid independent journalist, he never lost his compass. So uh, we miss him terribly, uh, but his his work, as I say, is a living legacy to everyone who values independent journalism, independent radical journalism. Um, Ford was a pioneer, and he will continue to inspire, I think, new generations of of. Uh, uh, muckraking journalists. So we were we were saddened by his passing, but uh, it seemed as we were uh, completing this book um, in the middle of summer, um, um, it seemed obvious that uh, well, this volume ought to be uh, one we dedicate to Glenn Ford. That's wonderful. Yeah, we're going to treasure these uh, journalists, the honest journalists that we have in this really hard time of uh, peril of the free press and. Um, there's so much you mentioned in the book of, that's going on about hedge funds running the newsrooms and and newsrooms being uh, leached by Google and other places that use their stories, but then they don't get any remuneration for you know the people that actually do the work. Uh, but in the news, we did have some some good things happen lately. There was uh, journalism got Nobel prizes this year, and it ha- that hasn't happened in decades, right? That's, that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's a very special development and a and a welcome one. And I think the Nobel prizes are often chosen uh, by the, the committee. The laureates are often recognized uh, to, to be themselves kind of political interventions. And so the two journalists who uh, received the Nobel Prizes in Journalism, Maria Ressa, who is the uh, co-editor and founder of Rappler, an independent uh, news outlet in the Philippines, and uh, Dmitry Muratov, who's editor-in-chief of the Novaya Gazeta, uh, the leading independent uh, news outlet in Russia, were both recognized by the Nobel Prize committees um, for their the role of journalism in combating authoritarianism. Um, uh, and we could do a whole show just on them uh, and, and 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 that. But I, in the time we have, I, I would just draw attention. Uh, to a fantastic set of remarks that Muratov, the Russian uh, independent journalist and Nobel laureate, um, a, a few things that he said in events around the awarding of these prizes, which just happened earlier this week, um, he was asked about the importance of independent investigative journalism, and, and his answer was, I think, a brilliant one. He says, the reason investigative reporting is important is because it keeps people who who would like to from stealing the future from us. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and then his other remark, his other remark that caught my attention and it stuck with me is he was asked, uh, why should young people 
uh, become involved in journalism? And his answer was very direct. He said, to change the world for better. And the reporter who had asked him the question said, oh, that sounds like it ought to be on a T-shirt. And Muratov's response was, no, it ought to be a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, that we, need, we need to have uh, an indelible reminder uh, that, that independent journalism is about keeping the powers that be from stealing the future from us, and that when, when we have independent journalism, both the work of the independent journalists and the publics that they serve uh, are, are better positioned to change the world for the better. And I think those are just fantastic messages. Um, and so, yes, it's, uh, you know, we could have some critical discussion about uh, other journalists who might have been equally deserving and Muratov, both Muratov and Ressa were very clear about saying they were they were receiving these awards on behalf of all investigative reporters around the world. Um, and I think that's an important point, uh, not to have it become too much a focus on these two individuals, uh, as heroic as they may be, but to really keep the focus on all around the world, often without the kind of recognition that a Nobel Prize bestows on an individual. Um, there are intrepid individ- uh, independent reporters doing uh, work that is often uh, physically and socially dangerous for them uh, on behalf of, of, of uh, an informed and engaged public. Well, you and start- that, of course, goes to the very heart of what we at Project Censored are doing. Right, and you've, you've certainly gotten to know a lot of these these heroes of the day. Um, I was surprised, well, not really. I wish I could say I was surprised that you found some important stories that got no coverage at all. Do you want to start out talking about some of those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is something that often uh, in the past Project Censored has been criticized um, what do you mean, you know, uh, this story was censored? How, you know, we don't have censorship in the United States. We have the First Amendment. Um, and obviously in the 21st century, it's much more nuanced than that. Um, so every year we do, we do track uh, all kinds of uh, important but underreported stories. Some of these stories receive no coverage whatsoever, um, and one of these is our, uh, an example of this kind of story is our number two story, uh, which is about journalists investigating financial crimes where in, in, in the context of, um, those journalists being subject to threats by powerful global elites because of the work that the journalists are doing. So this is a report that was originally, uh, conducted by the Foreign Policy Center. And uh, this was reported in the news by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And basically what the Foreign Policy Center did is they, they surveyed investigative journalists from around the world. And they found that, and this is several hundred investigative journalists, they found that more than 70% of them have been subject to some sorts of threats, harassments, um, um, or smear campaigns, even sometimes uh, physical violence in the course of doing their work, and that this was especially the case when, uh, when uh, journalists uh, were investigating how kind of dirty money flows through the world's most powerful banks and institutions. Um, so this is, uh, this is a, a story that I think shows exactly how uh, power, and in this case, uh, uh, in, many, in, in many of these instances, corporate power, can have a chilling effect on the ability of journalists to do their job, to, rep- to follow these stories, to track down the facts, and to inform the public. Um, the director of the Foreign Policy Center, Susan Cocktree, um, told... Uh, 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 commenting on this, said that, that, that the study provided, uh, I'm quoting here, quote, explosive insights into how political and business elites, as well as organized crime groups all over the world, get away with financial crime and corruption. And the way they do that is in part a matter of targeting reporters with defamation lawsuits, with cease and desist letters, with social smear campaigns, uh, social media smear campaigns, verbal harassment, and as I mentioned, even physical violence. I was kind of surprised to see that the United Kingdom is uh, 
the censorship capital of the democratic world? <laughs> yes, that was that's one of the um, that is one of the uh, uh, observations made in the coverage around this story, um, and that that comes from uh, a column in the Guardian, which was one of the few uh, news outlets to cover this story. Um, and that's because of the, the, the way the U.K. court system works. Um, um, slander laws are different in the U.K. than they are in the U.S. Um, and that, uh, uh, and uh, there also are these things called strategic lawsuits against public participation, uh, or SLAPs as they're known. And they're, uh, the U.K. legal system makes um, these strategic lawsuits against public participation uh, much more powerful and effective. Um, so yes, the the UK is a is a kind of a, an unfortunate center of this sort of activity. But that's not to say that journalists here in the US are immune or fully protected from this kind of um, in you know these kinds of efforts at intimidation and chilling. No. The, the slap issue now i've heard of those for decades over here in the us of course so is it then so it's easier to win a slap suit for a corporation in uh, in the but uk you, then you don't necessarily even need to win the slap suit right mm-hmm. um the thing these suits in many cases can be uh, in effect frivolous ones in terms of the charges but insofar as they tie up uh, uh journalists who are often operating as freelancers mm-hmm. or working for news outlets that have relatively small budgets, what you're doing is you're tying, you know, when you when you then uh, take out one of these slap lawsuits, you're tying up um, uh, uh, precious time and resources um, mm-hmm. and keeping people from, from keeping journalists from then going on and doing the digging that they would otherwise do. Yeah, some of our local environmentalists are familiar with those. Um, and mm-hmm. here I see you have um, another one here that's very interesting. It's the mystery of the missing health experts during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is our number uh, uh, thirteen story, uh, a story originally reported by Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting Fair, the the, um, the renowned media watchdog group. Um, and, and it's no surprise that this story wasn't well covered in the corporate uh, news media because this is a story about how the corporate news media, in particular, um, the five major networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, and Fox News, have basically sidelined health experts during the, uh, during the COVID pandemic. The study that FAIR conducted was done in April of 2020, uh, and what they found was that um, looking at um, the network's programs and who were featured as guests, just 26 of the 121 featured experts were um, actually health, uh, health and public health experts. Most of the remainder of the experts that were treated as the most newsworthy sources by the big, uh, by the big uh, news networks were current or former government appointees. Um, And so we, you know, at a time in the development of the pandemic, if we, if we rewind back to April of 2020, when we were desperate for any kind of reliable information, uh, what FAIR found was that the major networks, were uh, providing a platform to government officials and then to people like the CEO of the Bank of America, Federal Reserve Bank presidents, billionaire businessmen, Bill Gates, Barry Diller, Mark Cuban. Um, you know, those perspectives were, were, were highlighted. Um, a, and in addition to the kind of sidelining um, health perspectives, health experts' perspectives on COVID, these big uh, TV news networks were also uh, fair found they didn't have a single mention of the cancel rent movement or the widespread struggles that people were facing to pay for housing. But there was plenty of time for, as I mentioned, the CEO of the Bank of America and several of these billionaire businessmen who whose wealth only um, multiplied during the uh, pandemic 
plenty of room, for, uh, time on the air for them to uh, hold forth. So we should be on the lookout. So that's another. I should. I should just add quickly. That's another story uh, on our list. That's an example of one where there was no corporate news coverage of the story whatsoever. Uh-huh. Uh, so we should be on the lookout for the non-reporting <laughs> of the uh, eviction crisis, which is now just beginning this month. Right. I think I think what will happen with that, and this is conjecture on my part, so I'm not standing on an evidential basis. I don't have a crystal ball, but um, I, you know, I expect what will happen is we will get coverage of that now. Uh-huh. But the trick will be to analyze whose voices are are prized as newsworthy sources of information and perspective in in the corporate media's coverage of the eviction crisis that will you know will be in the midst of in these. In, in the near future here, um, my, my, you know, all the, all the research that I've done in my years working with Project Censored uh, suggests that, that the kind of pattern that FAIR identified in this story, right, a preference for former, current or former government officials will continue to hold even as we get um, coverage and that you won't find, for instance, people who are actually at risk of being evac- evicted treated as newsworthy sources. Um, because that doesn't fit the corporate news model of who and what count as newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really discouraging. Um, in, in addition to stories not being covered at all, you found a, another common problem, which is they have the story, but they leave out the important facts, the, the relative relevant in, information. What did you find out about that? Yeah, there there are a handful of these. Um, I'm gonna I, maybe I hope this won't let cats out of bags. But let's talk about our number one story this year as an example of a story that has received partial coverage um, in maybe both senses of that term partial, uh, partial in the sense of not complete, and partial in the sense of therefore slanted or biased. Our number one story is how prescription drug costs are set to become a leading cause of death for elderly Americans. And the research here, uh, the reporting here, was done by Kenny Stansel, uh, who wrote a, a, an excellent report for Common Dreams. And that report was in turn based on a study conducted by the West Health Policy Center, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan policy research group. And in the West Health study, they found that um, uh, more than one Point one million seniors in the federal government's Medicare program uh, will are likely to die prematurely over the next decade. So we're talking about more than 110,000 preventable premature deaths per year over the next 10 years because prescription drug prices will be unaffordable for them, even with Medicare. Um, this is what's known in the business as, quote, cost-related non-adherence, right? There are all kinds of reasons why people might not, uh, uh, patients might not take a full um, dose of the medication that's been prescribed to them. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it's cost-related non-adherence because the, the costs have become prohibitively high. Um, the great thing, I think, about this story is that um, both the Common Dreams news report on it and the West Health Policy Center uh, showed us how this need not happen. Um, these are, are truly preventable deaths. Um, policy changes could lower the cost of prescription drugs, and policy changes could help curb the power of big pharma, um, as Kenny Stansel reported for Common Dreams. The West Health study recommended limits on uh, the increases in drug prices that Big Pharma could charge. They also recommend, and this is something that Bernie Sanders has been championing for a while now, uh, empowering Medicare to negotiate directly with drug companies on behalf of patients. That alone, uh, the West Health study found, could prevent more than 93,000 deaths per year, and it would also result in uh, reduced Medicare spending to the tune of some $475 billion by 2030. So this is a story that on one hand has received partial coverage. Um, you uh, would have to, you know, have your be the ostrich with a proverbial head in the sand not to have found news coverage about the rising costs of prescription drugs. This is a major issue. Um, 
last fall uh, in the lead up to the presidential election, the 2020 presidential election. Um, but what we found when we researched this story was although there was significant uh, 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 corporate news coverage of rising uh, prescription drug costs from all kinds of perspectives, um, we found not a single uh, corporate news outlet had covered the West Health Policy Center's study, which included, as I say, not only um, these projections of how deadly the rising uh, prescription drug costs will become in the next 10 years, but also advocated some very realistic uh, policy uh, solutions that uh, deserve a wider hearing and ought to be part of our public discussion and debate about what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just murderous. So a, a quick uh, bit of mathematics, about about 85% of that hundred and something thousand of lives, premature deaths per year could be prevented then uh, with less expensive drugs if the government was uh, negotiating directly with drug companies for, on behalf right. of their Medicare it's, patients. Yeah. You know, you know, on one hand, that's simple. On the other hand, you know, the, the challenge is, of course, galvanizing the political will to mm-hmm. do that yes, when the people, right. the people who, you know, are elected officials who are in the strongest position to do that are also, of course, lobbied uh, constantly 24-7, yes. not only during election <laughs> campaign cycles, but... Uh, yeah. but but in between them as well by Big Pharma. Um, So, uh, you know, listeners to uh, corporations and democracy will recognize uh, familiar uh, kind of chords in the music here. Indeed. Money money and politics, a constant theme. Let me mention to listeners that we're speaking with Andy Lee Roth, uh, and we're talking about Project Censor's annual publication, which is just about, I mean, it's done and about to be sent out and, and is orderable, I believe, online already um, for the 25 most censored and underreported uh, issues of the last year. And if anybody would like to call in with a question at all, the number here is uh, area code 707-895-2448. Okay, uh, the other thing uh, along those lines of leaving out little details, <laughs> there's been a wave of wildcat strikes, and it, it doesn't seem like it's been portrayed in um, the media as a wave. It might, unless it's the baseball players, right? Right, exactly. Uh, that, that's uh, that's our uh, another of our top stories this year, our number two story. Uh, and I should add, I'm, I mentioned the kind of the rankings in the top 25, but I don't want to place over much importance on them. All of these stories are significant. They're all significant in their own right as important stories that deserved, that do deserve wider public attention. They're also important collectively as kind of an X-ray, if you will, of the places where the corporate news media are utterly failing us as, uh, uh, you know, as a society and as uh, community members and citizens. So, yeah, our, uh, the, the, the wildcat strikes story is, um, I misspoke a moment ago, it's our number three story. There is right now, there has been since um, uh, spring of 2020, a historic wave of wildcat strikes for workers' rights but you would never know it if you were paying attention only to the corporate news media because insofar as uh, labor unrest has been during the COVID pandemic has been covered, it's been covered in an isolated way with one notable exception that I'll talk about in a moment. But um, credit here is due to Mike Elk, who is an independent reporter whose outlet, uh, the Payday Report, focuses on labor news, and um, Elk and the Payday Report have been continuously updating what is known as their COVID-19 strike wave interactive map um, since early in the pandemic. Since March of 2020, the Payday Report has documented more than 1,500 um, wildcat strikes. And to be clear here, when we're talking about a wildcat strike, that is a, a, a worker action that is conducted by workers who are either not unionized or they may be unionized, but they are striking, they are taking action without the authorization of their union. So this is some of the most, um, this strike uh, is, um, 
I, it's it's a historic strike that uh, the, you have to go back to the late 1960s and early to early 1970s to have um, as uh, radical uh, a period of labor unrest as we are experiencing now. But again, as I say, um, there has been an effectively in effect a media blackout on this year long, uh, more than a year now wave of strikes. Um, the exception to this, Annie, you've alluded to, is that um, in August of 2020, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and other establishment news outlets did come around, and they suddenly decided to cover wildcat strikes, but only a particular kind of wildcat strike, those that involved highly paid athletes in the National Basketball Association, the NBA, and the and Major League Baseball. When those players uh, in those two leagues walked out, uh, violating the terms of their contracts to protest the shooting of Jacob Blake by Wisconsin police, the corporate media suddenly were very interested in, in wildcat strikes. Um, but with the exception of that brief period in August of last year, um, it wasn't until um, uh, a couple months ago in October um, that the corporate news media caught up with the independent news reporting on this story. And, of course, now we know about, you know, the, the kind of the frame that the corporate news media provided for this was, well, we had Striketober, which then merged somewhat awkwardly, I guess, into Strike Vimber, which isn't quite as, uh, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't sound quite as elegant. Um, but this, this, uh, points to something, um, that Project Censored has, uh, noted again and again as a kind of a informal pattern. Um, oftentimes independent news media lead on the coverage of some of these contentious issues, and it takes a period of 12 to 18 months or so. This is the part that we have, we recognize as kind of an informal pattern that someday I want to, um, someday I want to get funding and conduct a systemic study of this hypothesis that basically for many of these stories, it takes about a year to a year and a half for the corporate news media to catch up with and figure out a corporate version of what independent journalists have been saying and reporting for some time. Mm -hmm. And that's the case here. You know, the corporate coverage of Striketober is uh, kind of an example of like, oh, people in the newsrooms at the Post and the New York Times and the big TV networks are just figuring out now what Mike Elk and the Payday Report had been on the beat of since the very earliest weeks of the pandemic. Oh, thank goodness for Project Censored. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One other story you have uh, along these same lines is uh, the Amazon rainforest. And um, pe people do see some coverage about that, but they're mostly talking about how bad uh, Maldonado is. Um, Maldonado, excuse me. Um, what are they leaving yeah. out here? Well, what they're leaving out, uh, appropriate to our, our conversation in this program, is uh, how global corporations are contributing to indigenous rights abuses in the Brazilian Amazon, right? So the corporate version of this story is it's Bolsonaro, you know, the evil the evil leader of Brazil, and that's not to say he's not, a, 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 you know, an evil leader. Um, but, but given kind of a free pass in all this, are um, some of the world's top investment companies, global corporations like BlackRock, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Vanguard, the Bank of America, um, who are effectively corporate enablers of wrongdoing in Amazonia. Um, the, some of our reporting on this, which comes from um, uh, coverage in The Independent, the U.K.-based newspaper, and Amazon Watch, um, uh, shows how from 2017 to 2020, the financial firms I just mentioned contributed more, uh, collectively contributed more than $18 billion to some of the most destructive companies, uh, uh, in Brazil, uh, companies that are, uh, working in the mining sector, agribusiness, and energy extraction, um, all, of course, at the expense of uh, in, you know, the environment and, and the Brazilian, um, indigenous Brazilians, um, who are the, who are on, you know, bear the brunt of deforestation, land grabbing, illegal fires, um, and, and, and all these kind of, um, horrors that come along with, um, business as usual 
uh, in the Amazon. You have a, an, another line of reasoning here you've dug up with these uh, mainstream media stories, which is uh, sometimes they'll cover something really important and in detail, but they'll pass it off as, an, oh, this is an editorial, it's not news. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, we have a couple stories that exemplify that. Um, I think that's a form of framing. Um, uh, I'll, I'll talk some about those stories in a moment, but first to kind of give an overarching view. I think that's a form of framing that, in effect, says this is a contentious issue, but it's not really, it, 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 it's not quite newsworthy in its own regard, right? It's a matter of opinion as to whether this is so or not. Um, let me give two, uh, I'll give a, a couple quick examples of this. Uh, one is uh, we found this to be true in um, corporate news coverage of Canary Mission, um, which is uh, an online effort to basically blacklist uh, activists who are uh, organizing, uh, especially in the U.S., in support of um, Palestine and the uh, the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions movement to try to uh, challenge the government of Israel to respect the human rights of Palestinians. So Canary Mission uh, is a story that, as we tracked in detail, we found that what limited corporate news coverage there was took the form of um, opinion pieces. Michelle Alexander had a 2019 uh, uh, New York Times uh uh, op-ed that mentioned Canary Mission. The Washington Post ran one early in 2019 as well, but that we couldn't find any coverage in those major newspapers about Canary Mission itself as a, as a subject of news reporting. Um, the same is true if you look at um, uh, coverage of our number 11 story, the seed sovereignty movement and how it's challenging corporate monopolies. Um, when we talk about seed sovereignty, that's a term that was coined by the, um, the amazing uh, activist Vandana Shiva uh, to seed sovereignty to refer to the right, especially of farmers, to breed and exchange seeds that have not been patented, that have not been genetically modified, or aren't controlled by a big agricultural business. Now, this is, a, this is a topic that has uh, received some uh, corporate news attention in the form of um, how big corporate seed producers like Bayer and Corteva um, um, control genetically modified seeds through patents that provide exclusive rights of ownership. But our report on this is one um, from Deutsche Welle, a German-based independent news outlet, um, that talks about a more obscure but powerful way that corporations and international agricultural agreements benefit big ag at the expense of ordinary farmers. Um, and this happens in terms of, of intellectual property statutes known as plant variety protection laws. Um, these sound on the face of it like uh, a good thing, um, and they're, uh, they're uh, enforced under the auspices of the Union for the Protection of New Varieties of Plants. Um, and the idea is, in principle, to encourage innovation by allowing people who breed new seeds to profit from temporary monopolies on them. But the catch is that to, to qualify for these protections, commercial seeds have to be genetically distinct, uniform, and stable. And as some of the experts on this topic know, um, most ordinary seeds are none of those things, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Seeds. Uh, traditional seeds are handed down from generations and therefore are genetically diverse and they're constantly evolving. So ordinary farmers are not protected by these um, these uh, kind of intellectual property laws. Uh, the, the entities that are are these big corporate, um, uh, uh, you know, big ag as we as we think of them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge wealth of locally adopted crops that, as a result, are being replaced by standardized varieties and. Um, this is this is especially problematic in terms in the context of our climate crisis, where um, we know in all kinds of ways that the more uniform a genetic pool of any any entity is, the more vulnerable it is to all sorts of environmental stresses. 
So to cycle back around, Andy, to where you started on this one, this too is an example of a story that's been subject to kind of limited um, coverage. What we found when we looked for corporate news coverage of this story, specifically about the kind of um, seed sovereignty movement addressing these, these um, not the patents per se, but these intellectual property laws, is the only place that we found that mentioned was in a kind of a lushly uh, uh, photographed article in the New York Times magazine in June of 2019. Um, but this whole, the, the article was, uh, you know, talked about seed oligarchies as being a new thing. Um, it was critical of Corteva, Bayer, BASF for doubling down on a system of monoculture and mass distribution. But the author of that article was a restauranteur, not a reporter. And it was treated as kind of his personal reflections as someone in, you know, as a sort of environmentally savvy uh, restaurant owner. Um, and so it didn't achieve the kind of standing, I think, that a hard-hitting front-page news story on the same topic might have. Yes. Um, it could be read as kind of like his opinion on the matter rather than something that is uh, well-documented by a, a variety of sources and, uh, and organizations that are tracking these abuses. Yes, and it leaves the, the regular farmer with the only option of buying seeds from Big Ag. That's... I think that's a new story. Yeah, let, let me slip in a question about this, this International Union for the Protection of New Varieties of Plants. So what's the money behind that with, with, with this, you know, with this little scam going that hurts small farmers? I mean, it's largely, it is, it is largely, you know, part of that goes uh, back to the World Trade Organization, okay. which uh, provided guidance to the world's nations. Some guidance, um, okay. But this is all... This, this is, but the maintenance, but this is also, you know, like the United States is a member of the Union for the Protection of New Varieties okay. of Plants, and and other member nations. Right, part of what they're doing is encouraging, you know, places that in the past we would have talked about as developing nations, that you know, the global South. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, you, you know, you should become a member. It's important that we protect. You know, right. The the, the rhetoric sounds. Yeah. Important, right? Of course, we should protect new varieties of plants. But this is one of those cases where the language is somewhat Orwellian, right? Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a double-speak quality here. Um, it's, you know, the, 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 as Deutsche Welle's uh, report makes clear, right, the beneficiaries of this um, are big ag, not not kind of traditional mm -hmm. agriculture and the biodiversity that traditional agriculture uh, has historically supported. So, Andy Roth, you have another category, as if we haven't had enough problem with the mainstream press, of stories that are just stranded. I mean, they, they get printed somewhere, but it's not anywhere where I would see it. Um, what did you find <laughs> out? Yeah, one of one of those. I, I, and let me say here, like, you know, this can sound discouraging as we run through these stories. Um, uh, you know, it can sound like, oh man, the world's a mess in ways I had no idea. Even, <laughs> right? But I think this this goes back to where, where we were a little while ago with the idea that you know part of it, what investigative journalism is about, according to to uh, the Nobel Prize laureate. Uh, uh, um, Muratov is it's about not having our future stolen from us. How much worse would we be if we didn't have investigative journalists who were covering these stories, alerting us to these concerns, right? Where I do believe that many of these stories, had they not been covered by independent journalists and outlets, would we simply would be unaware of them. And this is a case uh, uh, where it's very much um, not... It's, it, this is an instance where it's very much not the case that ignorance is bliss, right? Not knowing about any one of these stories doesn't make uh, uh, doesn't allow us to be better engaged in the world. It leaves us even more vulnerable. So I think of the top twenty-five list every year as uh, you know, partly it's a it's, it's a warning and a clarion call to action for us, but it's also a celebration of thank goodness for these independent news outlets and independent journalists who are tracking these stories and bringing them to our awareness. Um, with that in mind, isolated coverage um, uh, is definitely another kind of pattern of news omission that we see and that we track at Project Censored. Our number um, 
our number, let's see what, um, I'm making number mistakes nine, when uh, I talk about numbers. So number num- 19 is our story on biomass. Um, and it's a, it's an example of this. So I'll, I'll gloss the story briefly. And again, anyone who wants to dig more on these stories, uh, they're all up on the Project Censored website, projectcensored.org. Yes, we are um, almost out of time. So a quick thing on the yeah. biomass, which yeah, is a rare, an- another um, crucial um, story. Yeah, biomass uses biomass uses energy uh, from plants, wood, waste materials as a source of heating and power. And the United States is now the world's largest producer and exporter of wood pellets that are used to produce biomass energy. This is from reporting in Truthout from um, Dana Smith. Um, where we're exporting all those wood pellets to is the European Union. Um, most people think the European Union is all about renewable energy in terms of solar and wind power, but actually 60% of its renewable energy comes from biomass. And there are real questions uh, about how sustainable and environmentally uh, uh, how, how environmentally sustainable biomass um, energy is. Um, the carbon costs of the imported wood aren't counted. Um, and as a result, the true costs of biomass energy in these European Union nations are not widely understood. Um, in effect, what we're doing is speeding up carbon emissions, pollution, and forest destruction. And this is this story is interesting because it's a it's a rare instance where the United States, and this is especially true in the southern parts of the United States, where a lot of the, the forest degradation is happening. Um, kind of has a, a colonized relationship to the EU. This is a story that uh, did receive um, a, a fantastic report in the New York Times in April of 2021. Their credit to Gabriel Popkin and Aaron Schaff of the New York Times, who really explored the deep impacts of the wood pellet production um, on communities in North Carolina. That article accurately describes the forces driving Europe's demands for pellets. and um, uh, But... Uh, what we found when we dug for more was other, if you missed that day's news in the New York Times, you probably wouldn't know about this if you were only listening to or following corporate news media. So this is a case where we found one very strong uh, bit of coverage on this topic, but nothing in proportion to the impacts that um, uh, the production, you know, the extraction and production of these wood pellets is having on communities in North and South Carolina, Southern Georgia, Alabama, Northern Florida. Okay. Um, and for that, you, we really had to turn to uh, independent news outlets like Truthout um, for a full picture of what's going on. Okay. Well, we need to wrap it up there. And my apologies to the one caller that tried to get in just a minute ago, but it's just too late in the program. Sorry, we don't have time for the call. And uh, and Andy, thank you for your summaries of these articles. Great stuff. Uh, listeners can uh, look at the short article on each topic at projectcensor.org. And the book can be ordered there also. And thanks very much for being our guest. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Annie. Pleasure to join you again. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.